Welcome to the Relentless Forward Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Jungling. This podcast is brought to you by GI Associates. GI Associates is one of the largest gastroenterology clinics in the United in the southeastern United States. And um, we at Stinkfeet Athletics have partnered with GI Associates to try to raise awareness of the importance of timely colon cancer screenings. Uh, there are many people who are eligible, um, about 50% of the state of Mississippi, in fact, uh, people are eligible to get colon screenings and have not done so or don't do so. And there's various reasons why people don't do that. Um, the stigma of getting a colonoscopy, the fear of getting a colonoscopy, or the idea that it doesn't apply to you, that's for other people. Um, but colon cancer is on the rise in the United States, even in younger and younger uh, demographics, so it's important to get your screening in a timely manner. And it's not that bad. I can tell you that getting a colonoscopy is not as bad as actually having colon cancer. I know that firsthand. So if you're in Mississippi or even in the southeastern United States, here's what you can do. You can email stinkyfeet at gi.md. If you're in Mississippi and you can get to GI Associates, they have three locations in the central Mississippi area. You can schedule an appointment at any of their locations and get your colon screening scheduled, your colonoscopy scheduled. If you're over 50, you are eligible. If you have a history of colon cancer in your family, you are eligible. If you are not in Mississippi, go ahead and email stinkyfeet at gi.md and ask them to refer you to somebody in your area who can get you uh, scheduled for your colon screening. It's very important. Um, so thanks to GI Associates for that. Again, that's stinkyfeet at gi.md. Um, about a week ago at Stinkyfeet Athletics, we had a very exciting event. We had our first um, uh, Lucky Town Beer Mile. If you're not familiar with Lucky Town, Lucky Town Brewing Company is a um, craft beer brewing company located in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, the guys over there are really cool, a whole lot of fun, and they have really good craft beer. So we partnered with them to put on the inaugural Lucky Town Beer Mile. About 85 people came out um, to actually run in the beer mile. There were a couple hundred more that were spectating, eating crawfish, um, playing some games. We had a live music going on. It was just really an awesome event. Um, if you're in the Jackson, Mississippi area now or at any point, or if you're in the region, look for Lucky Town um, Beer at your local craft beer um, dealer. Uh, we had a great time. Um, if you want to see pictures from that event, go to Stinky Feet Athletics Facebook page and check them out. You'll see that it was uh, one of the most unique um, races that you'll probably see at one point the the people running the beer mile actually went through the brewery uh, it was really just an amazing event we're going to start doing some quarterly events with lucky town brewing so keep an eye on our on our facebook page stinky feet athletics um, on the events to see when the next one is coming up on a personal note um, one of my favorite organizations uh, that i raise money for is a two-time cancer survivor um, i've tried to use my story to raise money and to raise awareness um, for organizations that do good in the cancer community. And one of those, and one of my favorite ones, is Pelotonia. Um, Pelotonia is a three-day annual cycling event in Columbus, Ohio. The CEO and president is my friend Doug Allman. And in nine years of existence, this will be year 10, coming up in August, but in nine years of existence, Pelotonia has raised over $125 million, and 100% of that money has gone to fund cancer research, cancer programs, um, both at in Ohio at the Ohio State um, Cancer Center, the James Cancer Center, and the Solov Research Institute. Personally, I've even been a patient up there, and what they do there is amazing. All this money that is raised by Pelotonia, 100% of it goes to fund research. There's probably not another organization like it in the United States where 100% of your donations go directly to fund research and programs. And you can visit www.pelotonia.org to learn more about their programs and see where your money goes. As my first fundraiser, I'm going to be doing the ride in August with a bunch of friends from Mississippi. Uh, but as my first fundraiser, I pledged to raise $5,000 for them. And I last last week took on the challenge of running 100 miles in one week. And if you know me, I like to run, but I don't run that much. So 100 miles in one week is a lot. It's about 14.2 miles a day for seven days. I was not necessarily fit for this. If you listen to the last podcast uh, with Mike McElroy, I talked about um, not being you know, physically fit for this. I was mentally prepared. 
Um, and it got extremely challenging. But when you're inspired and you're motivated by something as powerful as, um, you know, as cancer can be, and, and cancer has such a negative and terrible impact um, in so many lives, and including in mine. And so it's, 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 I'm glad I'm able to use my story of having cancer twice, of living with cancer now, uh, to raise awareness and to raise funds, frankly, to battle cancer. And Pelotonia does this as well as or better than just about anybody. So I did my 100-mile week. I struggled through. It was pretty, pretty intense, but with the pledges, my per-mile pledges, and with some single-time or one-time donations, I raised nearly $1,500 just by running 100 miles in one week. Um, we're going to be doing some more fundraising events coming up, so just keep your eyes out for that. If you're friends with me on Facebook, um, I'll be making some events. But uh, otherwise, visit www.pelotonia.org. You can search rider profiles, search for my last name, Jungling, J-U-N-G-L-I-N-G. And um, I'd love it if you'd consider making a donation or just visit the page and um, check it out. You can become a virtual rider with a commitment of just raising 100 bucks for Pelotonia. It's just it's an amazing organization. And I wanted to give it a shout out here um, so somebody can check it out. So my guest today is a, a, a very unique thinker, a scientific mind, and a great athlete. His name is James Fitzgerald. Uh, he's with OPEX Fitness. You'll hear more about his story in just a second. But James uh, uh, was referred to me by Mike McElroy. They, are, uh, they work together. And James is an incredibly smart um, a man and uh, just like I said he has a scientific mind for fitness and he dives deep into what it takes to really excel and to be fit and the reasons why you want to be fit and why you want to be strong um, and frankly he challenged some of my ideas uh, he's a lot smarter than I am and I realized that pretty quickly and he, he taught me some things he challenged some of my ideas he challenged some of my beliefs um, he's just a really interesting very deep thinker I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation we had. Uh, listen close to what James has to say. He's a pretty, pretty fascinating guy, and I really hope to have him back on the program. So thanks, everybody, uh, for listening to the show. Uh, this podcast has been pretty successful so far. I'm having a great time doing it. We've had a lot of good guests, and it's with your support that we can continue to make it happen and have great guests like James on the show. So uh, that's it for now. Uh, enjoy the show. Got to run. My guest today is James Fitzgerald of OPEX Fitness. Um, James, thanks for coming on the program today. I appreciate it. No problem. It's great to be here. Thanks. So uh, we were, this is the first time we're actually meeting, but we were introduced by uh, Mike McElroy. Um, Mike is a coach with OPEX Fitness and is a good friend of mine. And Mike, uh, I, I originally met Mike when I joined his gym a few years ago, <clears throat> kind of to help me along my own personal uh, fitness journey, and he's kind of become a friend and mentor. Um, so I was really happy when he he started talking about James Fitzgerald, and I started looking up some information about you, kind of on your on the background. And then when I started the podcast, I said, "Boy, I'd like to get James on the podcast." So um, thank Here you. Yeah, it's great. So thanks to Mike McElroy for setting this up. So James, can you tell us a little about your background in fitness, maybe the history of OPEX? Yeah, for sure. Um, I played a lot of sports as a young kid and then uh, had a rough injury um, at the end of my sporting career as a young kid and uh, fell in love with fitness because it helped me rehab my way back. And then um, so I wanted to go and learn about fitness and exercise at school and academic setting and uh, got out of that in the uh, 90s um, and uh, then went to the, you know, the public and wanted to teach everyone else around what I had learned and try to get out into fitness and say you know well what is this fitness thing like and how do you do it and what's all involved in it um and uh you know turn that into a business and a very growing business um and over time you know started to recognize there were lots of successes and failures in it um and uh, created some systems around how to do professional fitness coaching turn that into an education platform um, so that coaches around the world could partake in it um, and uh, continue to work with people out there in fitness. And now uh, um, OPEX is a, a company that uh, coaches coaches in fitness. Um, we uh, have a, a brand that's recognized with personalized fitness. 
um, and what we call personalized fitness is quasi individual design, probably what you've experienced possibly with Michael. And um, yeah, we coach coaches around the world um, and we have gyms now that are OPEX gyms that, um, you know, are really our opportunity to get to the market on what fitness is. Sure, that's great. So personally, I think I had seen um, somewhere that at one time you were the world's fittest man. Is that a, is that a true story? Well, I don't know if I was the world's fittest man, but I won a CrossFit competition at one point in time. And uh, because the uh, the uh, the description of the CrossFit champion <laughs> has the title of the world's fittest man, then I you know I'm not going to turn away from using that. Yeah, I wouldn't either. That's pretty impressive. So. Let me start with something. So I, I had gone to your, uh, I spent a lot of time perusing the OPEX um, website, reading your blogs and stuff. And I heard you say something on uh, on the intro video on your website, which really stuck with me. Um, and it said that fitness, and amongst other things, it said fitness is the medium that connects people to their highest values. And I, I, I actually went back, I listened to it a couple of times, I played it for my wife. Um, and we just, it really resonated because it put into words something that I've kind of been thinking for a long time. But I, I, I think that's, you know, extremely insightful and it really resonated with me for a lot of personal reasons, both as an athlete and a coach. But can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, remember in probably your world and my world, we could be biased in our experiences we've had in fitness that allows us to make that statement, right? Because it is a pretty strong statement for those that who may not be in a fitness world or understand even the effects of what physical literacy or exercise or some of those exposures can do for individuals. But, you know, I think, you know, people or including, you know, myself, my story, you know, I'll talk about for me, you know, you live, you live in a fitness world, but you're, I guess over time, you're really not sure why you're doing it. Um, and then, you know, over time, just like living, uh, you want to ask some bigger questions the more living that you do. You know, it's, it's like, well, why are we doing this living thing or what's the purpose behind this living thing? And I think the more and more we ask that around fitness, we just started to create a language and, a, and an awareness that, you know, fitness was something that um, in a coach-client relationship and what I was participating in, we saw there was things that, you know, humans would um, inspire to do and try to search out in fitness that led them to living larger lives and so fitness then in that context became a medium you know for people to live through right so that they can they can you know work towards their biggest priorities like what's the biggest bucket for someone you know what, what's something that really matters and my belief was always that there's things you're going to learn in fitness or physical movement physical literacy and, and movement that fundamentally is just movement that actually leads you to being able to do those highest priorities better than better than others, you know, or even best possibly can be. So you're a pastor, you're a school teacher, um, you're a brother, you're uh, working at a mill, you know, you know, so everyone has priorities, what's important over there. You want to build, you know, something. Um, I think that all those individuals, examples that I've given, they can use fitness as a medium to experience a really, a really a bunch of powerful things that connects them to those those big buckets, you know, those big priorities. So um, that's the that's really what I meant by that. And that's insane. That's uh, <clears throat> that's really insightful. It kind of that's kind of what I thought you had meant by it. And one thing for me it meant was, <clears throat> as an endurance athlete and as a cancer survivor, I learned there were so many ways I learned to battle in life. Um, a little bit differently through some of my struggles from endurance training that I, I don't think I would have learned without those. And so yeah. they, it was that, that running, that endurance, that struggle to suffer was one of those mediums that connected me, connected me to kind of some higher values and led me, led me through some of those battles. So I was, it was a good way to put that. I really enjoyed that. So you just mentioned, you just mentioned live larger. Um, what do you mean by live larger? I've seen that motto around your website. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. Um, well, I'll tell you what. It's not. It's not. It's not uh, a definition of what living is. You know, it's not. A, it's not a larger form of, of a life, like a supra level or a super conscious level. Um, it's a statement um, of action um, that it. You know, it, it presupposes that we don't just want to live. You know, so living living is you know is a state of existence that without even us creating context to what it means, 
is you're just getting by or just doing what you need to do. So living a larger life means that you're trying to grow in some way, shape or form. So you're meeting that great medium of challenge versus growth. Um, and it's allowing you to, you know, get outside of your comfort zone. Like we say, get comfortable with uncomfortable, um, and develop these aspects of human potential that, uh, allow you to live, but at a larger state, right? So when we say live a larger life, um, number one, one of my mentors, Bernie Nowakowski would love it because it has three L's. So in, you know, systematics and organizational thought, you know, it, people will remember it. So, you know, three L's certainly makes sense. And I had to fill that, you know, put that together. Um, but that's what we meant by it is just, uh, just, you know, search for a little bit of growth on everything that you do and, um, and live a little bit more than, than, uh, than what's just expected. I like that. I like that a lot. And then, so you also talked about, um, and this probably goes into that living larger. You said you talked about fitness being a journey. The, uh, the business that I actually work for is called stinky feet athletics. And then my training program is through that business. And one of the mottos of our business has always been enjoy the journey. But I, I like that you said that fitness is a journey. Um, and it, you know, it's a constant evolution. And I think that I think a lot of people struggle, especially with endurance athletes, athletics, they look at me and they, they look at what we do and they say, well, I want to just run one marathon and then uh, it'll be a bucket list. I'm done. A lot of this stuff is just kind of a one and done thing. So what's the best way to deliver, you know, this message to people that to keep them driven, to keep them motivated despite their failures or to kind of battle that one and done phenomenon where they just do one thing and they, they're not making fitness a, a lifestyle or a journey? Yeah, that's definitely one thing that uh, we have lots of experience with. I would say, unfortunately, like the fact that you and I are actually discussing that is kind of a problem, you know, if we wanted to judge it whatsoever, like the fact that, but, you know, um, I think it's just human nature. Humans want to be better and, and be faster. And um, it's not necessarily just keeping up with the Joneses, but we just, I think it could be a fundamental flaw, you know, inside of us that we just want to find the most easiest ways. But we're at this very interesting point now where we can't hack biology and it's ironic that the word even exists, right? Biohacking is just completely unnatural in terms of, you know, how we're put together. So um, I usually joke about it, you know, slightly and I'll come back to the point on how you help those people in alignment. But uh, it's like, it's like we're thinking that over 30 years, you know, pregnancy will take three months, you know, and people laugh at that. It's like, no, well, man, it's, it's nine months. That's just what we know. It's just, you know, biological. It is like, well, why do you think now you're going to get a pull-up after a week? You know, why, why, why do you think you're going to run a marathon in three and a half hours and you haven't run for 10 minutes yet? So, so the, I think it's um, that model is just in culture now. So it's uh, you and I have to understand that, that, number one, it's unfortunate people ask about number two, we got to recognize like that's an expectation now. Like it's a real expectation for people that Instagram has told them, Facebook has told them, a magazine has told them. So it has to be true, you know, right. because a biohacker told them, right? He wrote a book and was like, you just hack your way into this. This is how you do it, right? Um, but I can, the, the way that you help people with it is to create correct uh, alignment. So you got to go back to uh, having really close, great conversation, which is what you and I are doing today. I think conversation can answer all things. You have a conversation with people and you get to try to figure out the real fundamental truth as to why they're doing what they're doing. Right. And when you get to the layers, what we call layers underneath the truth of why they say they're doing what they're doing, then you start recognizing and they start recognizing that they actually don't want that goal at that speed or they want that goal for the wrong reason. And when they recognize that, then it's we, like I like to say, you catch them, right? You, you let them fall in your arms because you don't want to be like, ah, see, I told you, you know, it's got incorrect alignment. It's like, well, now that you've recognized that, let's work on, you know, moving you in a growth journey progression such that it's, it is possible one day. You know, it is possible one day, but it's not going to happen in six months. Are we good with that? And they're like, yeah, I'm good with that. Okay. Then your real reason here, you know, is that you want to be loved and accepted you're searching for opportunities of freedom. You, um, you know, feel that you're going to be a better someone because you're going to exercise. You feel that running is a meditative state for you. Like the, people will come up with these real, real reasons. Like then yeah. 
let's go after those goals. Let's get consistent and just keep, you know, like to your words, you know, keep it as a journey. Um, and so to answer your question, most times when you fix the alignment with what people are saying they want to do, generally the fast, I call it the fast track model. The fast track model is uh, investigated then they start recognizing it actually makes no sense. That's really interesting. That's a great way to put that. I, I hadn't really thought about it in, as from the alignment perspective. I like that a lot. So let's talk a little bit now about my favorite subject, which is running and endurance sports. I know Mike has, has told me uh, that you that, that you did you were a CrossFit guy, you're the OPEX guy now, but you also have a background in endurance and aerobic, aerobic stuff, running. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite areas to focus uh, – on running isn't necessarily you no know, specific training protocol, but the but the mental approach and constant mental battles of pushing physiological limits. So, you know, most people can't or don't want to keep increasing volume and intensity. Rather, they'll often try to focus on a specific event. You know, they want to spoke, focus on getting a 5K PR or completing, say, an ultra marathon. And while the training I prescribe to them, you know, it'll vary slightly depending on these goals. Ultimately, the major difference I've seen in their performances or in reaching their goals seems to be their mental approach. Um, and so I do a monthly coaching lunch with my athletes, and our recent focus has been on pushing physiological limits, but doing that through a lot of unconventional methods such as a mental approach, removing negativity from your life or dealing with stress or tackling certain mental blocks head on. So this can kind of just be an open-ended vague question, but you know, how important is the mental approach to pushing your physiological limits? And, you know, are there any unconventional kind of insights that you can offer that can help people in this area? That was a long-winded question. Yeah, no, uh, well, um, as, as usual, I'll ask you to remember your second part of your question and make sure I come to that because I am really interested in it. But the first part, um, uh, was, uh, just are there or do you think there's I guess validity and strength in that and by all means um, um, a quick answer is yes uh, uh, the, that you know it, it kind of gets and you know, you know the some of the challenges with it is that you know you're gonna have a real hard time with evidence-based work in that area right and that doesn't make it wrong because you and I know there's thousands of different examples that we could use in which people thought about those things and they got better, you know, and they could say that was the one thing. So, um, it's, it's basically, I would say in terms of practice, it's a fact, um, empirically that if people can organize their thinking, um, that does lead to them actually doing the race effectively or pushing the limits of their physical potential effectively before they actually do it. Now, there is some white paper stuff in terms of visualization and measuring uh, biomotor um, effects and uh, the physiology around actual, you know, um, VR and, uh, and visualization activity where people actually are like raising their heart rate to a certain amount at a steady state they would see in like an hour run, but they're actually not even moving. Um, and that can directly carry over. So we do have examples where people are just fundamentally, I'll just say it in layman's terms, they're just thinking, but they're not actually participating, right? But they are experiencing just through, through thought alone um, the successes and the failures and all the challenges that will be imposed on the stress of the race. And that does lead to an experience that has already been done before they even did the race. So what we lack, and I see this, we see this in fitness all the time, which is probably going to be what you would probably even be, you know, in your thoughts as well, is that if we can train people or educate them on this thought process, you call it removing negativity and people call it different words, but it's all really just visualizing what they want to have happen in that race. Then it, it creates this open area for them to actually experience that because They've already experienced it at one fundamental smaller level, if that makes sense. So um, I think there's a massive opportunity for it. As a, as a you know, health and fitness coach, what you're doing, if I could just offer like a separate outside you know, view of what you also may be benefiting from and you may not be recognizing, is that you're creating a better nervous system. 
So I look at what you're doing in two different ways. I see that you're creating more of a parasympathetic state, which allows the nervous system to learn things. Now, if people think that endurance training is just like a race, then obviously you got a lot of work to do. But if they see running as a skill, then you can see that having all other stressors pushed away will allow that skill to be heightened in its learning and its ability. So they haven't even run, but you've like added water and chewing food and removed shit in their life and sleep better and whatever. And now they're a better runner. And you say, well, I just removed negativity and made them think positively. But as a scientist, I'm on the outside looking in going, well, the nervous system has been a much better place to learn. So whatever it is, it's all the same thing, if that makes sense. But it ends up being, you know, a positive impact on that. Now, some of the areas that get gray and cloudy in there is that if someone has had a, you know, I would call it like a a 55th iteration of a repetitive bad pattern, sometimes that takes more than a a chat on the couch to kind of rewire behaviors. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll just give you an example. I get I get uh, people here to go through some of those challenging things with me in thought, you know, and in mind. And I'm just sitting here with them. It's like, okay, let's let's walk through the race, you know. Um, and you got you see that hill coming in the horizon, and like, tell me what you're feeling right now. Where are you in space, and how are you going to approach? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And they actually can't get the negative thought that comes into that spot, you know, which will be like, you're going to fail. People will laugh at you. The volunteer is going to say something that's you know, on the path that's going to turn you on a different, like, all this shit comes up that, you know, you and I don't have the professional ability to like rewire those people's brains. If that makes sense. Yeah. So that's some of the years that are really challenging um, in that form of visualization. If someone really has repeated behaviors that they've done, and this is like the 90th iteration of it, it's going to be really tough for us to rewire that. Um, I'm just shooting thoughts back at you as well. That was lengthy. As, that was <laughs> that great. Thinking back as your question. It kind of reminded me, I had just recently finished a book by Alex Hutchinson called Endure. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. And I, he in there, he quoted um, a lot, a guy named Samuel Marcor, who I think is a, maybe a South African scientist who studies sports science, but he has some kind of protocol that he calls brain training. Mm-hmm. Um, have you? Are you familiar with that? No, but I'm, I'm, I understand McCord and uh, Noakes and uh, Tucker's influence down there. And he had started a protocol where people, <clears throat> they fatigue their brains by doing brain training before they actually go out and train. So they actually, and I can't remember, it was hours or hours of very mundane tasks that really just almost made him angry. And he was worried that after he was trying to change their brain training, that he said if you go through the protocol, Alex Hutchinson, the author, went through it. And Marcor basically said, you're not going to like me when this is done. I just assume it was because it was so awful, but maybe people are just, they get trapped with their own brains. They're not sure what to do, but it's just so hard. But I just, that that book and some and the Noakes, uh, some of the stuff Noakes has written just always fascinated me because it seems like the there's so many different ways to dial in improvements and, and, and to, and to, you know, like we talked about with fitness being a medium to bring you to your higher values, there's so many ways to twist it and turn it. Um, and it's endless. It just, it never ends. And I think I I find that pretty interesting. Yeah. 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 Two things on that. Well, you and I probably recognize it, right? We, we know it to be true because let's say, you know, for example, I'll, I'll bike in here. Um, I'll do some exercise. Um, I'll have a meeting consultations. I'll coach athletes on the floor for a couple hours. I'll do a podcast, I'll do some business work, do some reading, you know, book interview, you know, something else. You'd ask me to exercise after that day. Yeah. You know, and what I, I just sat down or stood up for all those things after exercise, right? You and I know it to be true. There's no way we're, you know, it's like, ah, we'll leave that till tomorrow morning, right? Even if I didn't exercise in the morning, like at four o'clock, you're like, James, come on, man, let's do it. Of course, that works against biology and the sun and all that, you know, shit as well. But, um, you, just, you and I just know it to be true. It's like you, you exhaust your brain. You're actually not doing any exercise, and that's really challenging. So that's one point that we just can see day to day. What we break it down into, because we think about this all the time, and we don't have you know strict measurements around, but we call it one word. We call it resilience. So a resilience of a human largely dictates 
how they're going to um, adapt to any stress that's imposed on them. Right. So if we want to think about one of my coaches and I just thought about that, it's like in the future, somehow, and this is kind of, you know, an uncomfortable talking for some people on eugenics and like genetic phenotypes and, or sort of phenotypes and SNPs and et cetera for individuals, but there'll be a test in the future that will be some form of DNA code replicate replicate or something we'll be able to see in humans, like on birth that gives us an indication as to what the resilience level is. Now, what that will allow us to dictate is how well we learn, how fast we learn, um, how fast we increase motor control, all, because it's all based upon how the organism perceives stress, right? So back to your point on the person that kind of gets stuck, right? We say in our language that we need to improve overall just the resilience. Now, the, the, the enlightening thing around that is that there's numerous ways to improve resilience. I mean, you're partaking in it in your program. You just use different words, but we use the same thing, right? You remove other issues. You, you know, do great self-talk. You figure out how to rest after intense sessions, you know, all those things. But that allows a person to respond to stress better. Like you and I know, once we participated in fitness, when we had a bad relationship issue, it was like, that's not too bad you know like yeah. i can deal with that now you know i ran 40 miles with uh with one and a half good legs um i'm okay in this relationship right now so um i think the le- the word resilience if we wanted to tease that out a little bit is a real great insight that people could use because if you know you know and i'm not i don't want to use numbers for it but just think about it as like out of a 10 what's a person's level of resilience right you you want to say it's like well you know, um, something happens at work and, you know, you, you know, you just get, you can't handle it. And then you switch up a training session and you can't handle it. And, um, and you, you, there's a couple of hills you weren't prepared for and you can't handle it. It's like, those are all indications that they can't respond to, or they perceive the stress to be more than how they can respond to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think resilience as a word comes into that over time. That'll probably be measured. It's almost like, uh, you know, trying to measure consciousness today at the same level, you know. And one of those, uh, what you said kind of reminded me of um, uh, something that I read in that book from Hutchinson where he talked about how um, your, well, he talked about your physiological limits kind of being elastic, but he basically said a lot of that is uh, your your toughness is elastic as well. Your resilience could be elastic. You have to actually train to get a little tougher. You have to practice getting tougher to actually get tougher. And yes. uh, Mike McElroy and I had recently been talking about, uh, I told him the story, I have always been a quitter. My whole life growing up, I quit everything. I mean, I quit. If so, as soon as something got tough, I quit. And then when I started running later in life, that this is one of the reasons you're, you're, uh, where you said fitness is the medium that connects people. I, I started running and slowly running was that medium that connected me and made me more resilient and brought out those values of resiliency. Um, so I love the word. I love the word resilience. Um, I like our, our training program is called Relentless Forward Progress. And it's just we just want to be relentless. I think that's I like resilience is a really good word. I like it. Well, relentless is a powerful word word because it gives off an indication of uh, understanding there will be successes and there'll be failures. Um, it has a connotation of, you know, getting knocked down, but, you know, getting back up and moving. Um, and then you finish that. I mean, you could just call it relentless in itself, but relentless forward progress is, uh, is definitely, you know, gives off this indication that you guys uh, without a doubt want to move forward. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into some more running a little bit. Um, so I'm a I'm a believer in 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 volume and run training, and it's mainly because I've really, well, like what we just talked about. If you suffer a little bit, you got to suffer to get tougher. You, you the more you suffer, the more you can handle more suffering. But also because I've never really I've never coached anyone who didn't get better at running by running more. Now having said that, I try to make sure that my athletes are doing a lot of aerobic work when they're increasing volume. I don't raise their intensity that much, but um, in your opinion, you know, painting with like broad brush strokes, what's the best overall concept for runners, whether they're beginner or advanced, to really improve both their endurance and speed? This is a very 
you know, kind of a more specific question than things we've been talking about. But like, what's, you know, I have a lot of runners listen to this and they want to run a marathon. They want to run a 5K. They want to run a half, an ultra marathon. What's, other than the mental stuff we talked about, physiologically, what's the best way for them to just approach this? Well, unfortunately, I can't give a generalized answer for the groups you had said because there is no one answer for overall endurance development for a beginner, intermediate, or advanced if we classify each of them as being experience. So if a beginner has done nothing and an advanced trainee has done 25 years, it's not the same program for both people. And for the, for the initial reasons of what you said, and so I'll back up to that point and just create a, uh, um, also an agreement with what you said that like you may have recognized, you know, the volume method um, makes just so much sense. We'll just call it the volume method. It makes just so much sense if you actually want to participate in something that has volume. <laughs> like I, right. dude, you and I were kind of like, well, it just makes sense. But you know that actually, there's a lot of disagreement on it, and white paper research even <clears> being <throat> on it, and models of fitness, some endurance, but models of fitness that again, it's the fast track biohack model where they want people to get a marathon by just running 200s or doing Tabata protocols on a bike and it increases your VO2 max and therefore you can run a marathon, you know, so, but people, it's like a late night TV show, you know, where, you know, they, they see that someone says it with a white coat, right? It's like, oh my gosh, like, I think he said that Dr. Oz said that you could run 30 minutes a week and you could be a marathon champion. Like this is what they get stuck in their head. Right. Um, so it's number one, I agree with, you know, the concept of, what you call in different words, uh, you know, suffering, uh, I just call it the slow drip method to getting people up to an ability to sustain a pace for a long period of time, right? So as the example goes, you know, someone starts running and they have never run before, it's like, well, try running for a minute. And then, well, what, what do I do after that? As well, in a couple of days, try running for three minutes. And so it, you just extend this further and further out as people begin, which is essentially, you're adding volume without changing pace. You're adding volume over and over and over. Now I teach this in a model of coaching for endurance and for a specific training, which, you know, is parallel to what you just said. Um, so I'm, I'm in big, big agreement to that. We teach, you know, three principles of endurance development. I'll be short on that before I even get to like what each of those avatars could do to answer your initial question. Um, we believe in aerobic training that the word sustainability, we have to honor sustainability. So that means that you have to train aerobic training to not burn fat, to not be a world champion, to not win a race. We train aerobic training to become more aerobic. And we say it in that notion because people try to use aerobic training as an insert to fix other things. Like when we do strength training, we ask people, why are you doing strength training? They're like, well, I want to get stronger, dumbass. Like, why are you doing aerobic training? Oh, I always want to burn fat or get more condition. It's like, uh, that's the wrong reason to do aerobic training. So we fundamentally believe that you do aerobic training to get better at aerobic mechanisms. Uh, secondly, we start with endurance and we move towards power in relative to their function. Those are both aerobic, aerobic areas, but you have to start with aerobic endurance because it builds the blood and the lungs and the muscles all in unison before you move into faster aerobic efforts. And like you know, if you studied any endurance models of true success over the past 150 years, you'd see it's all relatively the same, except it's put in a different language. Um, and we believe that you have to find your functional goal, and that's what determines your total functional capacity of training that you need to do. For example, someone wants to run a 5K and be really good at it. It is a different voluminous program than someone who wants to be an ultra marathon champion or even participate in either one of them. And it doesn't mean that you won't get characteristics of both styles of training programs that may not help one another, but you have to know the functional capacity. Functional capacity means what do you actually want to try to do your best at? Because like you and I know, the pace of a 5K is different than an ultramarathon pace for that same human and for tens of thousands of other humans. So pace is a skill. So that, like we said previously, has to be a nervous system development. And it can't be trained in the presence of fatigue. 
So when you say suffer, you're basically meaning it's a slow drip extension of mm-hmm. muscle endurance and running that makes people sustain longer, 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 longer. So what is the overall method of endurance training? I kind of just gave it to you for the new person, right? You've got to just slow drip more over time in the context of efficiency, right? Because if we teach people repetitions and we forget that running is a skill, then you, you seem to forget that if they have like a wobbly wheel for their first 10 minutes of running and that continues when they're doing five hours a week, we're going to have a problem. So, you know, it's on the pretense that it's good mechanics along with a slow drip increase in volume. So the beginner, what do you do? Start small and add and add and add and add and add. And that's it, really. And then when you get to a functional capacity, say, oh, someone, oh, James, I finally ran 30 minutes. You're like, well, you could probably increase pace now. Right? Because they want to run a 5K. I'm sorry if I, I didn't into it, but they want to run a 5K. It's like, that's fantastic. You could be on your feet four times a week for 30 minutes and you can sustain that. That's super. Now we can make that faster. Right. And then there's different methods to make it faster. Right. We call it interval method or sustainable interval method. Coaches call it this fancy shit in different terms, which is just to sell books and whatnot. But it's all the same shit. It's interval method or steady state or easy aerobic work. Um, and that's what we do for that. For the intermediate person, they do need different levels of endurance style training. And the intermediate level runner actually has to participate in slight anaerobic methods. So anaerobic methods for that person could be, and I'll just give examples because it becomes very individualized. It could be technical hill running, which allows strength of the ankles, downhill eccentrics of the quads, et cetera, et cetera. It could be actual tempo fast, 200s, 400s, 600s, 800s. So it's faster than the race pace. But the reason why they're doing it is because it moves into a little bit of an unsustainable area, which can act as an aerobic booster when they do longer shit, right? So you can see that for the beginner, even those two things that I mentioned makes no sense, right? Right. But if you're an intermediate athlete, you probably need to focus on some of those power reserves, technical pieces, and aspects of running that you never even really thought were possible, that you're still adding to your aerobic volume, right? And your race pace training that you're doing, plus your volume increases. For the advanced runner, most cases, they need to work on efficiency. Continued push of volume, but really the only thing they can try to improve over time is VO2 max. If they can try to do that, it has to be done through like really hard efforts, pushing peak power, and just being super efficient with lots and lots of more added volume. So the word that you use for an advanced athlete is generally a lot of volume, a lot of aerobic work and great efficient training because they're trying to they're trying to find a one percent differential and what impedes a one percent differential is incorrect medium training right just just bullshit glycolytic pissing match training right which doesn't allow them then to train aerobically to improve efficiency so for those three avatars, that's what I would say would be like concepts to improve uh, the endurance aspect in principle. That's super interesting because one of the things I talk to my athletes a lot about at all levels is you call it efficiency. I would just, I call it running economy, or you know I I'll, I'll say that's sort of like being I like economy better than efficiency. Oh good. Well that's good. I didn't make that up. I stole that from Doug. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. better word. Yeah, but I I talk a lot about running economy and I. It's funny because that's how I ended up at Mike McElroy's gym as a, I, I'm not a super fast runner, but I was very experienced. So all I, I'm, very, I'm a pretty economical runner, but I had just been running and running tons of volume. I'd been doing tempo and intervals and speed work. and I had done everything I was supposed to do, but I just needed to take that next step. And I really thought that it was something with strength, mobility, maybe a little higher end work. And so I started going to Mike's gym and we started working together on some of that stuff. And it really... What it did was the the results were pretty fascinating for me because I was able to run more. I was able to go to his gym two or three times a week and increase my overall running volume and do it while remaining strong and injury free. And I, I mean, just automatically, I meant that meant I was recovering faster as well. Um, yeah. So now that's, that's probably economy and resilience. You know, you're building resilience and you're becoming more economical. Yeah, I was amazed at that. It was amazing how putting in that different kind of strength work, and some of it was pretty high, what I would consider 
high anaerobic work. You know, much pretty pretty short burst, really high effort anaerobic stuff that's really hard to recreate when you're running unless you can. There's no mountains around here. There's no the biggest yeah, hill we and, have. And I, I'm not sure you want to stay there, but there's no reason for you to do it in your sport, right? Because the idea of the anaerobic training or we call it a lactic work because it's not really in a super lactic well you may have participated sometimes in the old school mike mcelroy stuff but you were probably on a pretense of having such a good aerobic engine that you actually couldn't be super lactic um, or lactic endurance let's call it so when you're doing a lactic work just what you're improving is uh synchronization right um and you're improving recruitment um, and you're improving different kind of motor unit activation at a level that doesn't resemble your sport. So that's one of the that's one of the things that we are careful of is that you may not always need to do those kind of things in your sport setting, right? Because it's a skill that may not even apply, or it may be get you into an overuse situation. Or remember when you run, let's say you do run and do a lactic work, or run and do lactic work. Remember your time stamping, right? Because running is a skill. So you're stamping like this is what it feels like when you do that. So now you got to go and run for two hours. Don't forget, your brain has just learned more recently how to do that with running. Does that make sense? So I could see the benefits that that came from it. Yeah, yeah. For maybe it was just after years of running, I really it was you know some it was I had reached a plateau, and some of these sometimes you just have to find a way to break the plateau. And I think I, you said it in words I I'm not smart enough to repeat, but it was. You know, just changing your—I don't know if it's muscle memory, time stamping your muscles, whatever it was—it was changed. It, my whole—it was, and maybe it was nervous system. Just everything changed a little bit. It just reset kind of the whole thing. And like you said, I don't—I don't have to do that as much anymore. But I might have to do it again in a couple of years if I—if I slack off too much. But so, yeah, possibly. How can uh, how can runners remain injury free along with recovering faster? Aside from doing what what we just talked about. Yeah, um, well, they could, uh, because it's, you know, you take the, the biological um, format. This is, first of all, on the notion, you and I are agreeing that on the notion that it's under good economy or good efficiency. So sure. if you're efficient and you can run consistently and you can run hard repeats as well, and after 24 hours or 36 hours you feel good to go, then it's probably an example that there's not a lot of mechanical issues that are going on with your oh, current sure. state of running. So let's assume that's the case, right? Um, to answer the question, though, you have to have some form of a biofeedback in terms of the uh, perceived exertion or your speed of recovery in each of those running sessions and each of those fitness settings. So that's how you can enhance recovery is, number one, figure out how you deal with it and how fast you do recover from that. Because we're putting it into a big bucket. We're assuming that people are just going to do something and recover a certain speed but back to my conversation on advanced intermediate or beginner as we know a beginner will recover in six hours right because they actually can't fundamentally challenge their nervous system Uh, now they may have some mechanical flaws or some fatigue just based upon building motor control muscle endurance Um, and maybe the aerobic system was a little challenged because the first time they've done it you know forever in their life but really their nervous system is ready to go within six hours. Now you take someone who's a little more experienced, got 20 years in their belt and they do the same style of the training, but for them, that's good for them. It may take them 36 to 72 hours to recover from that specific session. So how do we know that? You just got to have a diary, you got a journal, you got to like check your stuff at the door before you start doing every exercise session. And that will allow you to dictate, like we say, a, a, a level of resilience, right? Because, you know, everyone, anyone can do a certain workout on Monday, whether it's running or fitness, and at over a thousand people, everyone will re- recover different from that workout. But it's the ones that will continue to progress, the ones that measure how the intensity was in the workout and how fast they recover from those. Now, we teach principles in it. So to answer your question of how people can do it, just use a high-low method. You know, have principles in mind that for every hard workout you do, you got to do an easy one. You know, and that sure. I mean, you look across. Man, you look again. As I say, you look across any method that people are trying to sell, and there's still good principles in there. Most times that applies. Most times that applies. And you know, just on a on a side note, outside of that, if one of the biggest concerns that you have is recovery, 
I would really investigate lifestyle first. So if lots of people are like, oh, how do I recover faster? Number one, you got to say, well, why do you want to recover faster? <laughs> um, maybe they're trying to get caught up on the fast track model. Number two, what's going on with your sleep? Like, do you sleep eight hours uninterrupted and really good? Uh, no, it's not normal for people to do that. Oh, it's not normal, but you won't improve. <laughs> you know, so um, those are the things we go after. We call them basic lifestyle guidelines, you know, uh, rhythm, energy, purpose, digestion, all those great things that folks need that you probably are privy to now. Yeah, that's really great. That's interesting. So let's turn this a little bit more. I, I was reading another blog on your uh, site, I'd, and it was about children and kids and how to progress kids into adulthood through fitness. So that also stuck with me a little bit. I have a, my wife and I have a three-year-old son, and um, I, we, my wife and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro a few years ago, and recently I read an article that a seven-year-old girl had set the record as the youngest person to ever summit Mount Kilimanjaro. And I told my wife, well, I'm, I think my son can be at, do it at six. But, uh, you know, that may be a little unrealistic. We, I'm not going to push him for that. But I did read your blog, which kind of made me think about parenting and um, bringing kids up. And I, I have a climbing wall that I built in my garage and my son climbs on. And so I, I like the article you wrote. But can you tell us some details on your thoughts in that area? Um, that's a deep one, buddy. Um, and if it takes up <laughs> our entire rest of our time, I'll apologize for it. No, that's good. Um, the reason why it is big is because, you know, um, and I'll, you know, I'll say it in a language that is, you know, that may be a little uncomfortable for people to hear, but, um, we have really showed signs that we don't give a shit about, um, children and their growth and development. Um, and the answer for it is we've slapped adult based models on top of them. And what has overlapped that is the biologist or the scientist like myself who knows, you know, little things like um, the, you know, perception and the ability to figure out skills and challenges that for a seven-year-old is completely different than it is for a 17-year-old, which is completely different as a 40-year-old. So you got to understand brain development and you have to understand organ development. You know, just I was just writing an article based upon it. As an example, I'll just do a little list of it, just to show you the small complexity that's involved in just development of humans, right? And then you can try to parlay that to like, well, what's for fitness for those people? Zero to two years of age, our, our adrenals and our kidneys are the biggest organ development or almost at their peak ability at zero to two years of age for different reasons on reproduction and survival. Two to seven years of age, our gastrointestinal system and our thyroid thermogenesis, hot, cold, temperature regulation, things like that. So you can just imagine that's not even fully developed until possibly seven years of age, right? So you can now that you can start to think about it is like, if we don't have full development of these pieces, what are we doing if we slap an adult space model who has full development of all these pieces on top of that? And I'll continue. Seven years to puberty, respiration is the biggest organ or system development that becomes apparently obvious. This will come back to us because respiration is a big endurance consideration, right? Uh, puberty is obviously the endocrine system is a big fundamental importance of growth to reproduce ourselves, which is kind of an important thing, you know? Um, Post-puberty is the cardiovascular system. And as we know, you don't get maximal growth of the central nervous system until 22, 28, 30 years of age when prefrontal cortex and our, would call it the highest levels of the brain are fully developed. So now that I've said that, you know, you can start to recognize that science never really, or science or biology or just growth in humans was never placed in parallel to answering the question, what should they do physically? Okay. So uh, I'm not going to get to a point on a prescription, but you have to recognize that without the fundamental basic support of all these systems, you don't ask the question, what sport should they do or what should be their activity? You have to ask the question, why? Now, as uncomfortable as it is, there's no reason for people to exercise today. Just think really hard about that. What's the fundamental, like 150, 600 years ago, a six-year-old probably had to learn how to sing a swing a sword to protect their home. They probably had to do some functional stuff with animals. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. Today, yeah. there's really no fundamental reason for exercise. So if your answer is, well, they play soccer. Well, 
soccer doesn't allow them to live longer, right? It may be fun and to enjoy them, but it's not a fundamental reason for them to do exercise. So just think about that on a functional level. We got to say, well, what are we going to do? And the, the real answer should come down to kids like education, right? It's no different in a physical literacy program. They need to figure out solutions to movement problems. And that has to be in an unstructured environment with structure and supervision. But an unstructured environment is structure and supervision. So the playground has to be in the gym as an example, right? And when you take that into consideration, then you'll start seeing that things like gliding, hanging, falling, dancing, throwing, kicking, running, jumping, roughhousing, these are aspects of fitness that need to be fundamentally displayed and experienced, but they need to find movement solutions in all those areas, right? Now there's ways of doing it, there's multiple programs to do it. But what you don't do is you take an adult model, and I won't pick on running because it's not necessarily, you know, could be the case, but you don't take a 5K an endurance model and say, that's, a, that's what's gonna work for an eight-year-old. Right. Number one, an eight-year-old can't solve solutions to their physiology because they don't even have their respiration system maximized. Number two, it's boring as shit for 99.8% of most kids because they need to be stimulated every 30 seconds. Number three, um, these humans grow differently every couple of weeks. So you have to have a new program and a new insert, right? Every couple of weeks for like 18 years. Where, where, where you and I are like, well, you're 35. This is what the program looks like, right? But imagine if you had a new person walk into your gym every two weeks. That's what happens in, in fundamentally with the growth of a child. So um, I'll stop there because you can see there's, a, I believe there's a lot of flaws in the physical literacy program for kids. Um, I believe they're largely specialized and sport commercial interest operated. Um, and not a lot of people are taking into consideration the connection to biology in relation to what they're actually capable of expressing. And that's hard to listen to sometimes because a lot of people would come back with the argument, well, who are you to like stop over fat kids from exercising? It's like, that's not what I said. You know, that's not what I said. But the answer for that is not to give them Gatorade at halftime at a soccer match. That's not the answer to that. Right. With parents. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to go on with it. Yeah. You understand where I'm going with it. So, you know, if and if your answer is, well, James, there's there's no program for that. That doesn't make it wrong. <laughs> it, yeah. that, that doesn't make, you know, uh, over scheduling them with minor soccer programs, you know, when they're five years of age to be elite at eight. Um, to be right, <laughs> I, oh, I, man. I think that's. Like... I think that's interesting because one of the things I had thought about with 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 my son, I talked about this with Mike on a previous podcast. Was uh, I look back at my own development at, when I was young, and same thing. I I grew up on a farm. We did a lot of farm work, so really I needed to be able to physically, you know, be on the farm and do physical manual labor. But part of that, what that did was, you know, it, it didn't, I didn't have any training protocols. I didn't have anything like that. But my, my, my parents were fitness, um, I wouldn't say buffs. They, they exercised a lot. They just stayed in shape and they worked really hard, which was another thing. But what that created in me was a baseline of expectations kind of for myself as far as what my physical abilities should generally always be. Um, I see my dad, he's 70 years old. Two weeks ago, he was climbing on a roof in a really dangerous situation. I was too scared to go on the roof to do this roof repair, but he climbed up there and then jumped off the roof, landed on top of a car. It was something else. But, you know, it, he learned those life skills just by always staying. He was always fit. He was always strong. He worked hard. He didn't, he, he never let himself go, you know, and he didn't have any training protocols that he stuck with for his whole life. But, but that, that stuck with me. It created a baseline in me of just an expectation of just being a physically strong man and being able to take care of the things you need to take care of and not to just let your you know, laziness and obesity get in the way of the things that you have responsibilities as a man to do. But I, I, 
I, what was ingrained in him though is that you know your family wouldn't survive if he wasn't physically capable that's right but that's what i'm saying is that there's no need for that anymore right we have driverless cars and <laughs> people that are going to put together a roof a lot better and cheaper than you and i would and a drone is going to drop it to our step you know so yeah um the the we're, we're, we've moved away from that into, you know, humans that are more intelligent, intelligently designed now, um, as opposed to like built for, um, you know, withstanding any stressors, you know. That's a, that's an interesting deep dive. I think that you just raised more questions for me as a parent now than I think we answered. So now I'm going to, we'll have to do this again so I can keep for asking sure. you more questions. Sure. <laughs> yeah, for so, sure. I'm interested because it's a... It's an area more recently, I spent a lot of time in it in, in an academic setting, uh, learning about it more, uh, growth and motor development was a really, really uh, powerful learning for me in an academic setting. Um, when I got out, I actually became quite disenfranchised with the physical education model because when I finished the education, I was put into that model to kind of practice it as an internship during my schooling years and just recognize the massive flaws within what was slapped, you know, in the education system. You know, they just like, we're gonna learn volleyball this week and we're gonna learn, you know, and I was just like, this is, this got nothing to do with physical literacy. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately I, I was like, you know what, I, that's not what I wanna do. So I investigated more science aspect and aspects of fitness. Um, then when I started teaching kids at the YMCA with our Fit Kids program and having two young girls, I started to recognize a lot of powerful things around that. And then the private institution in Calgary, I had it, went away from it for a while. And now we're back on board with trying to develop this model in fitness for kids. So this really, this is really a powerful, uh, strong topic that I would love to spend a lot more time on another time uh, discussing. That'd be great because I'd like to look into that. I, you know, being a parent changes kind of your perspective on a lot of these things. And I'm really interested in what you just talked about. That sounds pretty fascinating. It does, fascinating. and it feels like we have a little bit of a responsibility, you know, to uh, to guide and provide some of those challenges for movement that maybe that could uh, give them some longevity. For sure. So uh, let's see. A couple things. Um, what's the single biggest mistake you see coaches make for athletes? Probably uh, overprescribing. I can see that. That's good. These are quick, rapid-fire questions. Then we're going to yep. finish up. So then, what's the single uh, what's the single biggest mistake you see uncoached athletes make? Burnout. That's that was the number one thing I actually wrote down here. Um, all right. So one thing I say to my athletes often is that conventional thinking gets conventional results. Um, you know, most of my athletes have hired me in an effort to get unconventional results so if you could last thing here if you could give one piece of advice that's and maybe it's something we've already talked about but if you could give one piece of advice that's pretty unconventional that but you firmly believe it works despite you know what conventional thinking may say what would that be i'll put you on the spot yeah well i think maybe i'll do a play (laughs) on yours i think uh unconventional thinking that is a bad idea will still result in bad results Go on about that. (laughs) (laughs) So you can have unconventional thinking, but if it doesn't come from a base of experience, evidence, um, or data, or with the right principle in mind, then you could lead a lot of people into pain and injury. Sure. My approach on that really is that it's more of... um, um, limits that people think they have that really don't exist they exist maybe in their mind and they're afraid to kind of push past and try things that they that if you read i always call it the runner's world pamphlet if you look at runner's world no offense to runner's world they're probably not listening anyway but they just have like a pamphlet this boilerplate crap that a lot of times they just say everybody do this and that's what i mean by conventional because you'll, it'll, you'll get conventional results if you do kind of what they tell you to do. But if you want to yeah. achieve a little more, you got to be a little more unconventional. So, um, so yeah, I think that, well, if I was to actually add to help you clean up your language, I would call it, uh, because I think then you're succumbing to, you know, comparing yourself to just a lower order. Sure. Uh, call it, you know, <laughs> higher order training um, or a higher or a higher order of thinking. All right, I like. I'm going to write that down and use that. So if I yeah. trademark that, you can't. You're going to have to. You can't. Well, you it's can't already trademarked, my friend. My, uh, oh. my mentor, <laughs> Bernie Nowakowski, had the had the concept of higher order thinking. But 
you just call it a higher sure. order of something. That's it. You know, because like that's that. what you're doing, right? It's, yeah. it's uh, you just want to you want to forget that crap. And the runner's world is probably not even conventional. You know, like what is conventional? Then you got to get into that. You got to get those muddy waters. Sure, sure. Well, you're not supposed you to. Are, you guys are bigger than that. Yeah, you're not supposed to challenge the podcast host. You're not supposed <laughs> right. to turn it around. Come yeah. on now. Who's, who's asking the questions? Yeah, here? what's going on here? Uh, so, James, if people want to know a little more about OPEX Fitness, where can they go to find find out more information? OPEXFit.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, JFitsOPEX. Um, and you'll get, at, at OPEXFit.com, you'll see you know what we're doing and get into our blog and see some of our stories and... Uh, never know you may see an OPEX gym pop up next to you in the next little while. I think that would be great and I would recommend if anybody go to visit their website um, you, there's a ton of super interesting I would say unconventional but we'll call it higher order stuff Touché. higher order stuff on there that, uh, that you probably wouldn't think of yourself but James uh, it's been great to talk to you it's been great meeting you thank you very much for coming on the program this has been some of the most insightful stuff I've ever heard so hopefully we can do it again sometime Awesome, Jeremy. You know where to get me. We can do it again. All right, James. Thank you. Okay, buddy. Take care. You too.